Chapter Sixteen of the Stones of Venice, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rolder. The Stones of Venice, Volume One, by John Ruskin. Chapter Sixteen. Form of Aperture we have now in order examined the means of raising walls and sustaining roofs and we have finally to consider the structure of the necessary apertures in the wall veil the door and window respecting which there are three main points to be considered one the form of the aperture its outline its size and the form of its sides two the filling of the aperture valves and glass and their holdings three the protection of the aperture and its appliances canopies porches and balconies we shall examine these in succession the form of the aperture and first of doors we will for the present leave out the question of doors and gates in unroofed walls the forms of these being very arbitrary and confine ourselves to the consideration of doors of entrance into roofed buildings such doors will for the most part be at or near the base of the building except when raised for purposes of defence as in the old scotch border towers or our own martello towers or as in switzerland to permit access in deep snow or when stairs are carried outside the house for convenience or magnificence but in most cases whether high or low a door may be assumed to be considerably lower than the apartments or buildings into which it gives admission and therefore to have some height of wall above it whose weight must be carried by the heading of the door it is clear therefore that the best heading must be an arch because the strongest and that the square-headed door must be wrong unless undermount senison's masonry or unless the top of the door be the roof of the building as in low cottages and a square-headed door is just so much more wrong and ugly than a connection of main shafts by lintels as the weight of the wall above the door is likely to be greater than that above the main shafts thus i admit the greek general forms of temple to be admirable in their kind i think the greek door always offensive and unmanageable we have it also determined by necessity that the aperture shall be at least above a man's height with perpendicular sides for sloping sides are evidently unnecessary and even inconvenient therefore absurd and levelled threshold and this aperture we at present suppose simply cut through the wall without any bevelling of the jams such a door wide enough for two persons to pass each other easily and with such fillings or valves as we may hereafter find expedient may be fit enough for any building into which entrance is required neither often nor by many persons at a time but when entrance and egress are constant or required by crowds certain further modifications must take place when entrance and egress are constant it may be supposed that valves will be absent or unfastened that people will be passing more quickly than when the entrance and egress are unfrequent and that the square angles of the wall will be inconvenient to such quick passers through it is evident therefore that what would be done in time for themselves by the passing multitude should be done for them at once by the architect 
and that these angles which would be worn away by friction should at once be bevelled off or as it is called splay and the most contracted part of the aperture made as short as possible farther as persons on the outside may often approach the door or depart from it beside the building so as to turn aside as they enter or leave the door and therefore touch its jam but on the inside will in almost every case approach the door or depart from it in the direct line of entrance people generally walking forward when they enter the wall court or chamber of any kind or being forced to do so when they enter a passage it is evident that the bevelling may be very slight on the inside but should be large on the outside farther as the bevelled wall cannot conveniently carried an unbevelled arch the door arch must be bevelled also and the aperture seen from outside will have a somewhat the aspect of a small cavern diminishing toward the interior if however beside frequent entrance entrance is required for multitudes at the same time the size of the aperture either must be increased or other apertures must be introduced it may in some buildings be optional with the architect whether he shall give many small doors or few large ones and in some as in theatres amphitheatres and other places where the crowd are apt to be impatient many doors are by far the best arrangement of the two often however the purposes of the building as when it is to be entered by processions or where the crowd most usually enter in one direction require a large single entrance and for here again aesthetic and structural laws cannot be separated the expression and harmony of the building require in nearly every case an entrance of largeness proportioned to the multitude which is to meet within nothing is more unseemly than that a great multitude should find its way in and out as ants and wasps do through holes and nothing more undignified than the paltry doors of many our english cathedrals which look as if they were made not for the open egress but for the surreptitious drainage of a stagnant congregation besides the expression of the church door should lead us as far as possible to desire at least the western entrance to be single partly because no man of right feeling would willingly lose the idea of unity and fellowship in going up to worship which is suggested by the vast single entrance partly because it is at the entrance that most serious words of the building are always addressed by its sculptures or inscriptions to the worshipper and it is well that these words should be spoken to all at once as by one great voice not broken up into weak repetitions over minor doors in practice the matter has been i suppose regulated almost altogether by convenience the western doors being single in small churches while in the larger the entrances become three or five the central door remaining always principal in the consequence of the fine sense of composition which the mediaeval builders never lost these arrangements have formed the noblest buildings in the world yet it is worst observing how perfect in its simplicity the single entrance may become when it is treated as in the diomo and senzeno of verona 
and other such early Lombard churches, having noble porches and rich sculptures grouped around the entrance. However, whether the entrances be single, triple, or manifold, it is a constant law that one shall be principal, and all shall be of a size in some degree proportioned to that of the building, and this size is, of course, chiefly to be expressed in width, that being the only useful dimension in a door, except for pageantry, chairing of bishops, and waving of banners, and other such vanities, not, I hope, after this century, much to be regarded in the building of Christian temples. But though the width is the only necessary dimension, it is well to increase the height, also in some proportion to it, in order that there may be less weight of the wall above, resting on the increased span of the arch. This is, however, so much the necessary result of the broad curve of the arch itself, that there is no structural necessity of elevating the jam, and I believe that beautiful entrances might be made of every span of arch, retaining the jam at a little more than a man's height, until the sweep of the curves becomes so vast that the small vertical line become a part of them, and one entered into the temple as under a great rainbow. On the other hand, the jam may be elevated indefinitely, so that the increasing entrance retains at least the proportion of width it had originally, say, four feet by seven feet five inches, but a less proportion of width than this has always a meagre, inhospitable, and ungainly look except in military architecture, where the narrowness of the entrance is necessary, and its height adds to its grandeur, as between the entrance towers of our British castles. This law, however, observe, applies only to true doors, not to the arches of porches, which may be of any proportion, as any number, being in fact intercolumnations, not doors, as in the noble example of the west front of Peterborough which in spite of the destructive absurdity of its central arch being the narrowest would still if the poultry porter's lodge or gatehouse or turnpike or whatever it is were knocked out of the middle of it be the noblest west front in england further and finally in proportion to the height and size of the building and therefore the size of its doors will be the thickness of its walls especially at the foundation that is to say besides the doors and also in proportion to the numbers of a crowd will be the unruliness and pressure of it hence partly in necessity and partly in prudence the splaying or chamfering of the jam of the larger door will be deepened and if possible made at a larger angle for the large door than for the small one so that the large door will always be encompassed by a visible breadth of the jam proportioned to its own magnitude the decorative value of this feature we shall see hereafter the second kind of apertures we have to examine are those of windows window apertures are mainly of two kinds those for outlook and those for the inlet of light many being for both purposes and either purpose or both combined in military architecture were those of offence and defence but all window apertures as compared with door apertures have almost infinite license and form and size they may be of any shape from a slit or cross slit to the circle of any size 
from the loophole of the castle to the pillars of light of the cathedral apes yet according to their place and purpose one of two laws of fitness hold respecting them which lets us examine in two classes of windows successively but without reference to military architecture which here as before we may dismiss as a subject of separate science only noticing that windows like all other features are always delightful if not beautiful when their position and shape have indeed been thus necessarily determined and that many of their most picturesque forms have resulted from the requirements of war we should also find in military architecture the typical forms of the two classes of outlet and inlet windows in their utmost development the greatest sweep of sight and range of shot on the one hand and the fullest entry of light and air on the other being constantly required at the smallest possible apertures our business however is to reason out the laws for ourselves not to take examples as we find them outlook apertures for these no general outline is determinable by the necessity or inconvenience of outlooking except only that the bottom or sill of the windows at whatever height should be horizontal for the convenience of leaning on it or standing on it if the window be to the ground the form of the upper part of the window is quite immaterial for all windows allow a great range of sight when they are approached than that of the eye itself it is the approachability of the window that is to say the inhalation of the thickness of the wall which is the real point to be attended to if therefore the aperture is inaccessible or so small that the thickness of the wall cannot be entered the wall is to be bevelled on the outside so as to increase the range of sight as far as possible if the aperture can be entered then bevelled from the point to which the entrance is possible the bevelling will if possible be in every direction that is to say upwards at the top outwards at the sides and downwards at the bottom but essentially downwards the earth and the doings upon it being the chief object in outlooking windows except observatories and where the object is a distant or special view downwards it will be of advantage to shelter the eye as far as possible from the rays of light coming from above and the head of the window may be left horizontal or even the whole aperture slope outwards as the slit in the letter-box is inwards the best windows for outlook are of course oriels and bow-windows but these are not to be considered under the head of apertures merely they are either balconies roofed and glazed and to be considered under the head of external appliances or they are each a story of an external semi-tower having true aperture windows on each side of it inlet windows these windows may of course be of any shape and size whatever according to the other necessities of the building and the quantity and direction of light desired their purpose being now to throw it in streams on particular lines or spots now to diffuse it everywhere sometimes to introduce it in broad masses tempered in strength as in the cathedral coloured window sometimes in starry showers of scattered brilliancy like the apertures in the roof of an arabian bath perhaps the most beautiful of all forms being the rose which has in the unity of both characters 
and sympathy with that of the source of light itself it is noticeable however that while both circle and pointed oval are beautiful window forms it would be very painful to cut either of them in half and connect them by vertical lines the reason is i believe that so treated the upper arch is not considered as connected with the lower and forming an entire figure but as the ordinary arch roof of the aperture and the lower arch of the arch floor equally unnecessary and unnatural the elliptical oval is generally an unsatisfactory form because it gives the idea of useless trouble in building it though it occurs quaintly and pleasantly in the former windows of france i believe it is also objectionable because it has an indeterminate slippery look like that of a bubble rising through a fluid it and all elongated forms are still more objectionable placed horizontally because this is the weakest position they can structurally have that is to say less light is admitted with greater loss of strength to the building than by any other form if admissible anywhere it is for the sake of variety at the top of the building as the flat parallelogram sometimes not ungracefully in italian renaissance the question of bevelling becomes a little more complicated in the inlet than the outlook window because the mass and quantity of light admitted is often of more consequence than its direction and often vice versa and the outlook window is supposed to be approachable which is far from being always the case with windows for light so that the bevelling which in the outlook window is chiefly to open range of sight it is in the inlet a means not only for admitting light in greater quantity but of directing it to the spot on which it is to fall but in general the bevelling of the one window will reverse that of the other for first no natural light will strike on the inlet window from beneath unless reflected light which is i believe injurious to the health and the sight and thus while the outlook window the outside bevel downwards is essential in the inlet window it is useless and the sill is to be flat if the window be on level with the spot it is to light and sloped downwards within if above it again as the brightest rays of light are the steepest and outside bevelled upwards is as essential in the roof of the inlet as it was in the small importance in that of the outlook window on the horizontal section the aperture will expand internally a somewhat larger number of rays being thus reflected from the jams and the aperture being thus the smallest possible outside this is the favourite military form of inlet window always found in magnificent development in the thick walls of mediaeval castles and convents its effect is tranquil but cheerless and dungeon-like in its fullest development owing to the limitation of the range of sight in the outlook which if the window be unapproachable reduces it to a mere point of light a modified condition of it with some combination of the outlook form is probably the best for domestic buildings in general which however in modern architecture are unhappily so thin-walled that the outline of the jam 
perhaps become a matter almost of indifference, it being generally noticeable that the depth of the recess which I have observed be essential to the nobility of the external effect, has also a certain dignity of expression, as appearing to be intended rather than to admit light to persons quietly occupied in their homes, than to stimulate or favour the curiosity of idleness. And worth questioning also whether the triple porch has not been associated with Romanist views of mediatorship, the Redeemer being represented as presiding over the central door only, and the lateral entrances being under the protection of saints, while the Madonna almost always has one or both of the transepts. But it would be wrong to press this, for in nine cases out of ten the architect has been merely influenced in his placing of the statues by an artist's desire for variety in their forms and dress, and very naturally prefers putting a canonization over one door, a martyrdom over another, and an assumption over a third, to repeating the crucifixion or a judgment above all the architect's doctrine is only therefore to be noted with the indisputable reprobation when the madonna gets possession of the main door the arch heading is indeed the best where there is much incumbent weight but the window frequently has very little weight above it especially when placed high and the arch form loses light in the low room Therefore, the square-head window is admissible, where the square-headed door is not. I do not like the sound of the word splayed. I always shall use beveled instead. End of chapter 16. Recording by Rolder in London, April 2012.